John chapter 6, and we will be looking today at verses 48 through 71. John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How could this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One, of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for the reading of your word. We ask now, God, that you give us ears to hear the preaching of your word. We ask, O God, that you would till deeply the soil of our hearts, removing the rockiness. This is a particularly difficult passage. Help us, O God, to understand what it means, apply it to embrace its truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we return again to our study in John chapter 6, and we continue the treatment of uh, the bread of life discourse. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day were looking back with some level of fondness on the days of their fathers in the wilderness. They were seeking a sign like they had in the days of Moses. And they had placed their hope in what had occurred then. Their hope was in manna coming from heaven. If God's Messiah was to reveal himself, they thought, that he would give them what Moses had given them, manna. In other words, their hope was bound up in the provision of bread. They wanted to go back, as it were. They perhaps viewed the Exodus generation as the good old days and wanted that their generation would have something similar. They wanted to have their bellies filled. They wanted the prospect of an earthly kingdom. And so, after they saw the miracles of Jesus, they saw the multiplication of the bread and the fish, they were ready to crown Jesus to be their king. Things seemed great to them. Here was one who was giving them bread miraculously, who was healing the sick. Here was one who could perform signs and wonders. And so things seemed great. Things were great to them, that is, until Jesus began teaching. It was in the teaching of Jesus that many of the people began to become upset. Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that they were wanting. They wanted a Messiah they could relate to, one that would give them what they desired, full bellies, an earthly kingdom. But Jesus says, don't look at your bellies. Don't look for the establishment of an earthly kingdom. Look at me, Jesus says. I am the bread of life, he says. But this caused even more consternation. As they wondered, how could Jesus, whose parents they knew, how could he make such a claim? Jesus, though, teaches them of the sovereign will of God. No one could come to him unless they are drawn by the Father, which then explains their unbelief. But then he gives even more difficult teaching, and even more difficult teaching for them to accept. Jesus reiterates again that he is the bread of life, and then he speaks in the language of feeding on him. He says that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, unless you drink his blood, you have no life in him. If what had already been said was hard for the people to accept, how much more is this difficult to accept? This is incredibly difficult particularly in light of the law of Moses, which forbade this sort of thing, this eating of flesh, drinking of blood. And so what does this mean? What does Jesus mean by these words? In order to have life, you must eat and drink him. Now the language used here, by the way, is reminiscent of the Lord's Supper. You can see, see that, and perhaps uh, we can say that it anticipates the Lord's Supper. At the supper, our Lord Jesus Christ served his disciples a feast. In the breaking of bread, he said, this is my body. And he served them wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for sin. 
So the language of feeding, of eating, of drinking, though it's not speaking of physical food, but of the close, intimate relationship which exists between the Lord and his covenant people. You've heard it said, uh, you know, the, the saying, you are what you eat. But here, what is being talked about is not literal physical eating, but of closeness, of intimacy, in which the Lord abides in us and we abide in him. This is what Jesus means when he says he is the bread of life. But as we've already stated, the Galilean Jews have proven themselves to be seeking after the wrong Messiah. They wanted manna from heaven. They wanted what Moses had given. And Jesus is telling them that they are looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for the wrong Messiah. They should be seeking him. So they're in danger of missing the promised Messiah altogether. They're going, to miss, they're going to miss the whole thing. They're going to miss the one who had actually come for them. Because here he is. He has come to bring life. He has come to bring salvation to those who trust in him. And so the crowd and the would-be disciples are looking for bread, physical bread. But Jesus said that whoever believes in him has eternal life. He is the bread that's come from heaven. And so in verse 48, he says, again, I am the bread of life. And this is where, of course, we're picking up in the discourse. Now, Jesus' proclamation of being the bread of life, again, contrasts with the demands of the crowds. They wanted a sign provided for them like Moses had given And during the days of Moses, God had given manna to their fathers, and so they had eaten it. But what happened to those people? What happened to that whole generation of people who ate the manna in the wilderness? Well, Jesus says in verse 49 that they ate the manna given, and they died. Now, it's not that the manna killed them. (laughs) That's not the point. It's just that the manna wasn't intended to give them eternal life. That wasn't its purpose. Its purpose was to sustain their life during their wanderings in the wilderness. And it served as a sign pointing forward to something else. Now the people should not be looking for that which perishes. Which they should not be looking for the things which don't lead to eternal life. And so again, they were looking for the wrong thing. They were trusting the wrong thing. What they needed was the bread that was from heaven, the true bread which had come from heaven. This is what they must eat, and when they eat of that, they will not die. This is something that the manna, which Moses had given, was never capable of doing. It wasn't even intended for that. And so Jesus returns again to the metaphor. He's the bread Come from heaven, as he's already said earlier in the narrative. Anyone who eats of this bread will have eternal life, but the eternal life comes not from the action of eating. It doesn't come from chewing. It comes by faith. Eating, then, is metaphorical language for believing. The eating is believing. That's the idea. Trusting and resting in Christ by faith is what is being spoken of here. The the close, intimate relationship of the Lord and his people. Those who are 
saved, have saving faith, are assured then of eternal life. And so Jesus again repeats the assertion now with greater force. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So here again, Jesus identifies himself as the living bread, an expression synonymous with bread of life. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice too here the word flesh. This takes us back to John chapter 1 verse 14 where we read that the word became flesh. And so the incarnate word who has become flesh freely gives of himself for the life of those who believe. So again, we're, we're connecting all of the gospel of John back together here. The giving of his flesh, of the sacrifice, of course, is accomplished at the cross. The, this is the bread of life which he gives. He gives of himself. In other words, Jesus is giving himself at the cross for us, for life. This, in this, is life for all the world who believe. And again, this, we should recall the words of John the Baptist who, you may remember, called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus had come to give life, to take away sin, to bring us from death to life. He is the bread of life. And he uses the action of eating as analogous to believing. So eating this bread gives life forever. And this bread that he gives is his own self, his flesh. That is to say, his body, himself, given at the cross, a sacrifice which takes away sin. Since his giving of the bread is for the life of the world, his sacrifice is vicarious. His sacrificial death is, is, is an exchange of his life for ours by faith. He gives, us, he gives us life. So the Son of God surrendered His life for ours. He took our place. He took the penalty due us and He gives to us His righteousness. He has given Himself for us. Again, this brings to mind more scripture. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which we read for our Old Testament uh, reading. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought to us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. But as we've already seen and alluded to, the Jews weren't responding by faith. Before they had been grumbling, which ironically enough is what their forefathers did in the wilderness. You know, they, they wanted to go back to the wilderness and what they, what they were doing, of course, was doing the very thing their forefathers did, which is grumble. Well, here they are, they were grumbling, but now... They are arguing. They're arguing sharply among themselves. Now, the verb which is rendered disputed here is very strong. This is a, this is a very sharp disagreement. 
Now, anyone could see that Jesus was not speaking so literally when he spoke of eating his flesh. He wasn't speaking of literally, you know, cutting off a piece of his arm or something and, and chewing on it. That's not what he was getting at. Anybody paying attention would know that that's not what he was getting at. No one should think that Jesus meant to be advocating for cannibalism. You know, offering himself as a, as a meal, a physical meal. Now, the, the language he uses here is, is figurative. It's metaphorical. And those who were hostile were revealing themselves as being hostile when they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Could they possibly think that what Jesus meant by these words was to be taken at face value? And in, but in doing this, they were actually revealing their hostility toward him. Jesus is revealing their heart. Well, in response to the Jews arguing among themselves, Jesus repeats himself. He expands on what we had said in verse 51. And, and, and really, again, he's getting to the heart. Verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the eating of the flesh of the Son of Man, the drinking of His blood, gives one eternal life. The one eaten, eaten note, uh, notes bears the title Son of Man. This is the one, this one is a man on whom God has set His seal of approval. We saw this back in verse 27. He is also the bread from heaven, the one who ascends and descends to where He had been before. So there are, there are a number of points previously given which are, which are expanded, expanding on the overarching theme that Jesus is giving here. First, we have here the, the Son of Man title. This speaks of Jesus Christ as the man in whom God is most supremely revealed. And the flesh of this man, though he is in one sense a man like any other, is not like any other. For in eating of his flesh, eternal life is granted. Next, you notice the drinking of blood is added to the eating of flesh. And here again, Jesus is expanding on his earlier statement. If the Jews had found this, the previous statement of eating flesh to be offensive, uh, there's, no doubt that they, there's no doubt that they did. They found this to be very offensive. Now, Jesus adds the drinking of blood. This would have been just absolutely scandalous to them. The law of Moses, of course, forbade the drinking of blood. Even the eating of meat with the blood was forbidden. So the idea of eating the flesh of the Son of Man and then also drinking His blood was most detestable and offensive to them. Now, these shocking notions prepare the way for what Jesus says later, even as his own disciples have a difficult time understanding what Jesus is driving at. What is being pointed out, though, is the refusal of those who are hostile to Jesus to understand his most basic point. And so their hearts are being revealed here. Blood's primary symbolic reference in the scripture is not actually life, Though it is used that way, but rather to violent death. It's mostly found in context of sacrifice. The shedding and sprinkling of blood at the altar. Jesus is himself the supreme sacrifice for sin. His blood would be shed for his people. 
It is Christ who would drink the cup of judgment in our place so that we may drink of the fountain of life in him. And so these these figurative pictures point to a great reality of salvation. And they bring greater significance to the ritual that is found in the Lord's Supper. To to over-literalize the Supper, as some are bound to do, would miss the point of what Jesus is getting at in terms of his figurative language. But to merely memorialize the Supper is also to miss the point. Notice, too, the parallelism between verses 54 and 40. Everyone who looks at the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And then verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You'll notice the eating and the drinking and then the, the believing. So the only substantial difference between these is the action taken. Eating, drinking, or looking and believing. And so the conclusion one must come to uh, is that the latter is the metaphorical language referring to the former. So do you want to know what Jesus means in his statement of feeding on him? It is believing. It's it's very clear from the parallel, right? This is what Jesus is driving at. It's believing. We need to to view the entire discourse together to see this point. Feeding, as Jesus, eating his his flesh, drinking his blood, is metaphorical for believing, trusting in Christ, resting in him, having that close, personal, intimate relationship. And so the manna of the Old Testament certainly had dietary value, but the flesh and blood of Jesus he says, is true food and drink, because whoever eats and drinks abides in him and he in them. In other words, Jesus, again, Jesus is speaking of this intimate, close relationship. And so he's employing metaphorical language to drive that point home. The eating and drinking then of Jesus symbolically pictures the internalizing of Christ Jesus in us and we in him. This has implications for us. Our Savior Jesus Christ must be more than a character in a book to us. He's not merely external to our reality, but He's internalized because we are in a covenant relationship with Him. So the language used throughout this narrative is driving at a close and personal intimacy, seeing, feeding, Believing, abiding, all of these taken together speak to our relating to Jesus as our Savior and as our God. Jesus then must be more than a mere theological concept. We must admit that this is easy for us to do, isn't it? It's easy for us to make Jesus to be a, a, just a, a, a theological concept in which we construct uh, our entire worldview around. This is certainly the case. It is true, of course, that Jesus is, you know, we build our, the- our theological framework, our worldview around him, but he's more than just that. That's the point. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is the only mediator between a holy God and sinful men. He is our King. 
These are all, of course, theological concepts. But these are also theological concepts which we could only understand in the abstract. And I think as Reformed people, it's easy for us to do that. No, Jesus must not remain in the abstract, though, beloved congregation. We must relate to him. We must internalize him. We must be found in him. In our day and age, among many of the evangelical churches, becomes something of a cliche to speak of a personal relationship with Jesus. Nevertheless, this is precisely the idea. We are to relate to Jesus spiritually through the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And Jesus has given us a meal as one of the sacraments in which he relates to us. This is speaking of the Lord's Supper, a sensible sign for us. He gives us something tangible which points to spiritual realities. Jesus knows what we need. The mission of the Son was to give life. He was sent by the Father. Jesus refers to to him as the living Father because God has life in himself. So the living God has sent the Son so that whoever would feed on him, again, that is to say, believe and have a close, personal, intimate relationship with the whole person of Christ... That person has life because Jesus gives life. He who believes will have true, abiding, and eternal life because of Jesus. And so we're being invited to believe in, to embrace the whole Christ, the whole of the person and work of Jesus. People have life in Christ because Jesus has life in himself. Something, by the way, that the individual human being does not have. We don't have life in and of ourselves. We, our, our life is derived. We are dependent on God for our life. Both our physical life and our spiritual life. But Christ has life in and himself. And he was sent to give life, to give spiritual life. Again, this is what Jesus means when he says that he is the bread of life who has come. This is the nourishing food that people are craving. Not the baked bread which he multiplied, not the manna from heaven which generations prior had eaten, but are now dead. However, whoever feeds on Christ has eternal life. Belief in him here is the key. Only Jesus Christ provides eternal life. The section then ends with a note on, in verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And Capernaum was the hometown of Jesus' family. And the things which Jesus uh, <clears throat> taught had been at least in part taught in the synagogue there. Which, this may explain, by the way, why there was such sharp disagreement and disputing as this was being taught there and others you know, kind of came and, and disputed it. But sadly, it was these very Jews who were attending to the worship of God, who were reading the word of God, who should have been looking for Jesus and yet were in danger of missing him altogether. 
Because Jesus wasn't fitting the Messiah that they wanted. And so they were missing him. They were looking for the wrong Messiah. And so this would cause many of them to no longer walk with the Lord. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, it's not that the things that Jesus, Jesus were saying were hard to understand. It was hard to accept what he was saying. But Jesus, having divine knowledge of his disciples grumbling, then asked this, Do you take offense at this? Of course, Jesus knows the answer, doesn't he? Do you take offense? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If the disciples of Jesus thought these teachings were offensive, what will they say when he's on his way to ascending? That is to say, what offense will they take to the cross? As much as they were offended by the statements of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, how much more would the crucifixion of the Messiah that they were waiting for? They didn't want a crucified Messiah. They wanted a a king who would rule immediately. The the Messiah was supposed to conquer. He was supposed to overthrow. He was supposed to return the nation to its place of glory and honor. The idea that the Messiah was to endure humiliation at at the cross, well, that was obscene. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 tells us. And yet the cross of Jesus Christ is at the very center of his divine disclosure. The cross was where the work of salvation would be accomplished. This was the very thing that many of his disciples couldn't understand. And even Peter will later be troubled by the prospect. If there's any lingering confusion as to what Jesus meant, whether his statements should be taken so woodenly as to think he spoke only of physical things, he makes it clear in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What Jesus is talking about, what Jesus is speaking about is spiritual. He's not speaking of physical things. If one is to take the preceding discourse literally without considering their symbolic meaning, then it would cause offense, right? It sounds like he's talking about cannibalism. That's offensive, and rightly so, but that's not what he's talking about. To only take it as in, a phys- in his physical sense is not to get to the heart of Jesus' meaning, and thus it's useless, he says. If, you just, if you're just only going to look at the physical, it's not going to be any, of any value to you. The flesh itself is of no help at all. Now, this does not mean that the flesh is insignificant. After all, the Word became flesh. But if the focus is only on the physical, only on the earthly meaning of Jesus' words, then the real significance is lost. And this is the problem that some of the disciples of Jesus had. They were focusing on the wrong things. They were focusing on the physical. And ultimately, what we see is that they didn't believe. Now, when John mentions disciples... What he is talking about are those followers of Jesus. This would include the twelve 
and the larger group of disciples that were following after Jesus. And so among the people, these followers of Jesus, there were some among those who did not believe, regardless of the great miracles, regardless of hearing the message which Jesus proclaimed. There was a pattern of unbelief among some, with the supreme example, of course, being Judas, who would betray him. The fact that there were some who do not believe, even as they had been in great proximity to the Lord, having seen the signs, hearing the message of of salvation being reiterated, verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. They didn't have life because it wasn't granted to them. Jesus was quite aware of it from the beginning that he would be rejected. In fact, this is stated in the prophecy of Isaiah that we read earlier already. He knew that he would be rejected by men. This is why divine intervention was necessary, which he explains in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The fact is that all would reject him were not for the work of God in men's hearts. If the Holy Spirit didn't transform hearts, no one would accept these things. In order for one to believe, they must be drawn by God. Their hearts must be transformed. They must be born from above. These are all things which John has talked about in his gospel, hasn't he? This is the work of God in men's hearts who would otherwise remain in unbelief. This is why so many did not believe. Even as they were with Jesus, they had not been given by the Father. And so they refused to come. You see, the hearts of men are naturally hardened against God. There is no neutrality when it comes to the hearts of men and the will of men. Regardless of how much they were threatened with hell, regardless of the prospect of divine punishment or the commands to believe that they will be held accountable for their unbelief, they they simply cannot. Faith, beloved congregation, is a gift From God. And genuine saving faith is never based on autonomous human decision. God the Father must draw them, God must grant them to the Son. There is no other way but through God's work. This, by the way, should inform our evangelism and our apologetics, shouldn't it? Our general outreach among unbelievers. Uh, So many of you have unbelieving family members, you have unbelieving friends, you have unbelieving co workers. We should first understand that their unbelief is not God's fault. It is their own fault. And yet their belief will only come because God transforms their hearts. In addition, we cannot coerce someone into the kingdom. All of our best arguments, all of the evidences which we could stack up in the world, even if we could perform signs and wonders ourselves for the unbeliever, none of this will convince them. Their hearts must be transformed in order for them to believe. They cannot even make themselves believe. This, by the way, should relieve some of the anxiety that you may feel when you are trying to minister to the unbeliever around you. You're not responsible to make them believe. You are responsible, though, to live out the Christian life before them. You are responsible to pray for them and plead with God for them. To contend with, and be content with whatever the answer may be from God, who is sovereign and holy 
and good. No one can come to, to Jesus unless he has been granted by the Father. These hard truths, though, caused many of the disciples to leave Jesus. They turned back and no longer walked with him. What, what is being uh, described here is a decisive abandonment of Jesus. Certainly, many of these disciples were those who had found offense at the previous comments. And Jesus didn't say anything which would remove the offense. And perhaps, really, what Jesus did was added to the offense. As one commentator put it, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. And so these Galileans, like those from Jerusalem earlier, walked away from Jesus, having not been given the gracious gift of faith. And so Jesus turned then to the twelve. You know, he's, he has this decisive abandonment of many of these disciples. Now he turns to the twelve and he looks at them and he says, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave? Everyone else is leaving. You don't wish to go away too, do you? Here now we have a, a more dramatic remembrance of Peter's confession of faith than what is recorded in the synoptic gospels. And there is a certain amount of, of tension in the situation but as usual, Peter speaks his mind. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter asks, you know, really, what is the alternative? What is the alternative? Is there, is there anyone else to go to? Is there anywhere else to go? Peter acknowledges that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Though the sayings have been hard, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, this would have been very difficult to understand. Nevertheless, Peter, speaking for the rest, confesses that they have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Now the title, Holy One of God, is a messianic title. Though it's not used much in the gospel record, Jesus is the one who has been set apart by the Father. He is holy. Indeed, Jesus sanctifies himself, John 17, 19. In order to deal with the sin of the world, he must be holy. Peter and the other disciples who, have, who are left have nowhere else to go. They have no one else to turn to who can bring them life and salvation. And so they will follow the Lord. But it's not like Peter and the others have anything to brag about. They will continue to follow Jesus and confess that they believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life and is the Holy Word of God. But any, any pretensions that somehow they're doing Jesus a favor, like, you know, we just think you're a good teacher. We're going to just kind of keep following you. We're going we're to do you a favor by doing this. Any pretensions of that, that they were somehow smarter than these other disciples? Who had left, like, hey, you know, we've, we've got this figured out. Like, even though these other guys, they, they left. No. Look at what Jesus says in verse 70. Did I not choose you? <laughs> Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. Jesus chose them, the twelve. Those who believe and continue with him are there at his initiative. As God. And yet, 
There is one who will continue with them who is not among the elect, but in fact is of the devil. One who would betray him, which John explains is none other than Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas would betray Jesus, and this would be revealed later. But at this point, the disciples don't know. They don't know who Jesus is speaking about. And yet, with his divine knowledge, Jesus knows all along, and yet had chosen him to continue with the others. For this was part of God's providential and sovereign plan. The crowds and would-be disciples hearing Jesus' teaching were seeking the wrong Messiah, and they were in danger of missing him entirely. My concern is that many in our own day are making the same mistake. Are you seeking Jesus and what he offers and who he is? What are you seeking from Jesus? Do you want a Messiah who will give you something? Are you seeking the perishable things or are you seeking to feed on your Savior by faith? To have a close, intimate relationship with him, that you might be taught by him, that you might abide in him. Are you interested in what you think he could do for you or to give or to give you or in what he truly offers to you? Life in himself. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior came to set the captives free. He came to give life and salvation. He came to forgive through the sacrifices of himself to usher into his kingdom, his people. So many go away from Jesus because they never knew him. Beloved, seek the Lord. Walk with him. Find your hope and your rest on the one who is the bread of life. Feed upon him. Know him. Abide in him. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. These are, this has been a difficult passage. In many respects, hard, hard to understand. Yet, in, in, in other ways, it is actually quite clear. What we're being invited to, to do is to believe and abide in you. Oh, may we be a people who do that very thing. May we abide in you. May we seek that close intimate relationship that we know Christ Jesus. That we would feed upon him. Help, the, help these, these things be on our mind as we participate in the Lord's Supper. As we are trusting by faith in Christ who had come to give us life. Thank you, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.